Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. All of us have seen them. Some of us have actually been to them. You ever heard of an escape room? We actually have one in town. Go ahead, Jeremy, put that up. You seen that one down in Arnold's Park, an escape room? Now, for the uninitiated, let me explain to you what an escape room is. This is a room that they lock you in for a period of 45 to 60 minutes, and you have codes to crack, uh, puzzles to solve. You do it with your friends, and sometimes they're even amazed to work your way through so you could eventually, hopefully, escape from that room. Escape rooms come with a variety of themes. Sometimes you have to escape from a space station. Sometimes you have to escape from a prison. Other times it's like you have to be a pirate trying to escape from a ship. It's a lot of fun. It's the latest cultural craze. Some of you are going, yeah, I've been in these things. They're they're sort of fun. Uh, Escape rooms are pretty recent, though. The first one began in Boston in the year 2004, and they've sort of exploded in popularity across the country. Um, by the year 2007, I think it was, there was up to 17,000. Let me just check my numbers there. I wrote those down. Uh, up to, yeah, 2017, they were up to 8,000 worldwide and it has continued to grow from there. But while escape rooms and how to get out of a, a locked room has been popular, really just for the last 15 years in our culture, escape rooms and how to get out of a locked room has been popular in church culture for the last 2,000 years. You say, really? Is that true? No, I'm not talking about a junior high boy that gets stuck in the furnace room during a church all-nighter. I'm talking about something a little bit more serious than that, and we'll find out what it is this morning. As a church, during the month of July, we've been studying the hot topic of hell. What does the Bible say about eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment? The first week in the series, we sort of looked at the basics of hell and just some of the, the verses that would introduce us to that topic. The second week in that series, what we looked at is um, the final day of judgment, the judgment day, because many people refuse to talk about that, but it's all over Scripture when God will empty out the souls that are in Hades and reunite them with their bodies so they will be judged by Jesus Christ. And all those who have not known Jesus Christ will be justly sent to the lake of fire. And that was our last message. Today, we're going to look at, is there a way out? Is there a way to escape from eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment in hell? Now, just so you know, over the last 2,000 years, there's been a number of people who have tried to treat hell like it's an escape room, as almost there's a puzzle to solve or a code to crack that once you figure out what it is, you can pop out the back end and be released from suffering. We're going to examine those attempts at escaping from hell this morning and see if they actually work. The outline of what we're going to cover this morning is really sort of simple. The uh, first thing we'll do is just go back to what the Bible says about hell and its permanence and its punishment so we can keep our finger in the text and just remind ourselves that the Bible does very clearly say that hell is never-ending. 
Then we're going to examining the, examine these two attempts that are common throughout history to escape the permanence of hell. And then at the end, we'll go back and we'll look at why the eternal hell is actually designed to create, well, one of the reasons is designed to create tears of joy and gratitude on our faces for how Jesus has saved us from it. So go ahead and take your outlines out. We're going to jump right in. We have a variety of things to cover today. Let's begin by looking at what the Bible says about the eternity of hell. The Bible says hell is eternal and without escape. Mark chapter 9, 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, as Jesus describes it as the unquenchable fire. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus describes hell as a place the maggots do not die, where the fire is not quenched. There is never a time in hell where it gets easier. There is never a time in hell where it gets better. The sufferings of hell never diminish according to Jesus. And those are Jesus' words, not my words. They're right in the text. Matthew 25. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is Jesus. He talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats, about the, the final judgment. And I think it's very clear. He says that those apart from Christ will go away to eternal punishment, that there is no way of escape. But those with Christ will go into eternal way, excuse me, eternal life. He doesn't give any hints that there's a way you can switch seats on the bus once you get there. You know, it's just sort of the way it is. It's permanent. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Notice how this describes this. No rest, day or night. The smoke of their torment goes up for how long? Forever and ever. Seems to be pretty clear in Scripture. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Paul writes to the Thessalonians about those who are persecuting them. He says, guys, remember, there is a final day. There is a day of judgment. And those who are persecuting you, who are making you suffer, they will suffer the punishment of not temporary destruction, but eternal destruction. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Doesn't seem to be a way out to me. But in spite of these clear verses in our Bible, for the last 2,000 years, there have been people who have consistently claimed that there is a way to escape eternal punishment in hell. 
And we're going to look at these this morning, and we're going to evaluate their attempts at escaping and see if they actually work. I'll give you right up front the two major ways they have done this throughout church history. One is called universalism. The other is called annihilationism. So let's go ahead and jump in and look at them. Universalists claim everyone will eventually escape hell and go to heaven. And there's a couple of varieties out there. Uh, one is what I call Hollywood universalism. This is not necessarily consciously thought out, but it's consciously what most people practice. It's the idea that when people die, where do they go? Everybody goes to heaven. You just hear it, see it in Hollywood. That's what everybody does. In fact, you go to the funeral director. You cannot buy a funeral package for somebody who went to hell. Can you? Today, he is an eternal punishment. You know, it's like, it's not in there. It's all Bible verses in heaven. That's the way everybody thinks life ends. We're not going to interact with that directly, but you need to know that that's out there in people's thinking. It's very common. We're going to act, interact with something that's a little bit more sophisticated. It's what I call liberal universalism. Because the liberal church teaches this many times. It is that those in hell will eventually pay for their sins and then graduate to heaven. So hell, they think, is a temporary thing. And by that, I could say the lake of fire, to be more honest about what it is. And you eventually be there for a while, and then you graduate and go to heaven. The idea that many liberals will say is that uh, Jesus is reconciling everything to himself. People in hell will be reconciled to him. Demons will be reconciled to him. Even Satan one day will go to heaven after spending enough time in hell. There is a, a slightly different variety of this that they would teach, and that would be that is the reason that uh, everybody goes to heaven is not because they've paid for their sin, but because after a while they'll finally break down the hardness of their heart, and in hell they'll finally allow Jesus to pay for their sins. Sort of like a post-mortem conversion idea. After a hundred years of suffering in the lake of fire, people will go finally, okay, I've had enough. You can save me now. And that's essentially what is taught. And let me show you how universalists teach this. Let me give you one quote from this. Here's why universalists speaking. God will not rest until all of creation, including Satan, is reconciled to him. Until there is no creature who cannot return his look of love with a joyful, excuse me, next page, response of love. I cannot believe that God wants punishment to go on interminably any more than does a loving parent. The entire purpose of punishment is to teach, and it lasts only as long as is needed for the lesson. That sounds nice if it's filled with problems. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that Jesus will one day forgive Satan and restore him to heaven? Absolutely not. In fact, it very clearly says that Satan's final resting place is the lake of fire forever and forever. Does it say in the Bible that the purpose of hell is to teach it says in the Bible the purpose of hell is just punishment for sin, not to teach you not to sin. But this is the way that universalists tend to think. 
Let me give you a brief history of universalism, where it began and how it developed and how it is actually permeating into our culture. So here's the way it goes. Universalism actually first began with a, a teacher in the church named Origen. Origen lived in the year 185 A.D. through 254 A.D. He was a theologian, if you want to call it, from the city of Egypt, or from the land of Egypt, I should say. But he also liked to mix Greek philosophy in with his theology. And so that's essentially what he did. He began teaching through his Greek philosophy that it was God's ultimate plan to reconcile everything to him that included those who were assigned to hell, that included all demons, that included Satan, that eventually everyone would graduate from hell and leave hell and go to heaven. That's what he taught. Now, that didn't go too well for him. Even though he died in the year 254, his teachings hung around and was taught for a while. In fact, it ended up, there was a worldwide church council in the year 553, the Council of Constantinople, where his teachings were condemned as outright heresy because it's not found in the Bible anywhere. And that sufficed to keep universalism quiet for about 1,500 years of church history until it popped up again. It popped up again first in England by a, a pastor named John Murray. He started teaching that everybody eventually went to heaven. He was a Methodist, incidentally. Then another person took it up again. The guy's name was Hosea, Hosea Ballou. He taught universalism in the 1800s. Let me tell you who he is. He is the uh, historical roots of the universalist church. The universalist denomination, they believe, by the way, that the Trinity is not true. They believe that Jesus Christ is not God. They do not believe in sin. They do not believe in salvation. They pretty much chucked everything. Uh, not a good historical roots. And, but this is the guy who is teaching that everybody eventually goes to heaven. Interestingly, to bring this into a modern context, in the year 1961, the Universalist Church and the, Univer and the Unitarian Church joined together to make what is called the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Keep that in mind, because we see that. Half of that church is the, well, sort of like the original teaching of universalism that everybody eventually goes to heaven, including Satan himself. Now, you think maybe it would stop there, but it certainly didn't. And this is how it began to penetrate our world. Eventually, there was a theologian out there named Karl Barth. Now, if you've been around, you know that I don't have a great love for Karl Barth, because Karl Barth uh, went, was, would go so far as to say that the Bible is full of errors and you cannot trust it. And so we don't have a lot of love for him. But he also began teaching that, guess what? Everybody and everything eventually will go to heaven. He began teaching universalism. The other person who began teaching universalism that you may know is William Barclay. Remember Barclay? Some of you have known Barclay's commentaries. Barclay is a universalist. That is what he believed, and that is what he taught. The next guy who picked up universalism, that everybody, including Satan, will end up in heaven, is a guy named Rob Bell. 
Maybe you've heard of him. He's sort of the hip, dye my hair, wear funky glasses, dress with a really tight button-up shirt so I look cool, hipster, um, youth kind of preacher. In fact, his book was really popular for a while. It's called Love Wins. Go ahead and put that up. That's the title of his book, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And you can tell what the answer is. Love wins. Everybody goes to heaven. I read his book. Let me tell you uh, sort of his, one of his closing lines. It's this. God saves them all without their even asking for it. He's a universalist. Now, this one may shock a few of you. John Paul II also began teaching universalism. Let me show you this quote from him. Man, every man without exception whatever, has been redeemed by Christ and with man, with each man without any exception whatever, Christ is in a way united even when men are unaware of it. Now, it really doesn't matter what Barclay says. It doesn't matter what Bell says. It matters what the Bible says. Will hell eventually be emptied? Will everyone go to heaven? Well, it seems to us, we've already read the verses, that it's pretty clear. The Bible says that hell will not be emptied. It's eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment that's a just response to sin. But the universalists come along and say, oh, no, no, hold on. You just have to read your Bible a little bit because there are many verses out there that show that everyone will be saved. Really? Well, show me those verses. So I'm going to show you the verses they will give, and I'm going to walk through answers to see if their attempt to escape from the locked room of hell actually works. Here we go. What verses do they claim support universalism? One they use is John 12, 32, where he says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see, everybody is going to be saved. What would you say to a universalist who showed you that verse? How would you respond? Let me help you think that through. In the Gospel of John and in many other books of the New Testament, whenever you find the term all men or all people or the world, uh, that term is not referring to everyone in the scientific statistical sense. It is referring to all people in the ethnic sense. What this is saying is that Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is not just the savior of the Jewish world, but he is the savior of everyone else in the world in the sense of all tribes, all nations, all cultures. There is only one savior out there. It is Jesus. Now, we tend to read that, all people. We might think it's um, statistically. It's not. It's ethnically. Let me give you some supporting evidence for that. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it talks about what is around the throne of God, where it says people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every culture are there. It does not say all people are there, but people from all different tribes and cultures are there. 
Interestingly, if Jesus meant this verse to be universalistic, that everybody is going to heaven, this was John 12, 32. Look what came right before that in John 12, 25. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Right in that context, Jesus says some people will lose their life, and some people will keep their life. Jesus just said there's two places. Not that everybody goes to heaven. Let me show you another verse that the universalists love to use. Acts chapter 3, 19 through 21. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. The universalist says, you see, here it is. Jesus is going to restore all things. He's going to be the savior of everybody. But you're too smart to fall for that. We just covered that two weeks ago. The time when Jesus restores all things, the time of final judgments. It's the time not where he empties the lake of fire. It's the time when he finally actually populates the lake of fire. It's the time when he makes the new heavens and the new earth, when earth is completely stripped free of sin and heaven and earth are united as one and we live on the new creation. Restoring of all things is not just the restoring of us in our resurrection bodies, but it's the restoring of the creation itself. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying that every single person goes to heaven. He's talking about the, re the restoring of not just our bodies, but of creation itself. Let's go to another verse the universalists like to use. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Universalist says, see, there it is. Jesus died for everyone. Everyone's going to be saved. I already clued you in how to answer this. Whenever you see all men, all people, or the world, it's not referring to them statistically. It's referring to them ethnically. He is not just the Savior of the Jewish people. He is the Savior of all people. And here is John writing. He says he is not just the one who is the propitiation for our sins as Jewish people, but he's the propitiation for everyone else's sin who turns to him. It doesn't matter what race or tribe or language you come from, because you know that's how it works. Uh, different parts of the world have different deities. He says, no, there is only one God in the world and only one way to be saved in the world, and it's Jesus. Incidentally, in this same uh, letter, 1 John, just a little bit later on, what does John say? Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Once again, you have only two options, smoking and non-smoking for all of eternity. Hopefully that joke went over okay. Here's another one universalists like to use. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. They say, there it is again. Everyone's going to be made alive through Jesus. Except if you read this in context, it's a very different meaning. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking to Christians. He's not talking to all people. He is saying that um, it matters who our head of our family tree is. If the head of our family tree is Adam, we live in sin and we die. But once we have trusted in Christ, the head of our family tree is Christ. We are forgiven of our sins and we live. So he's saying everyone who is in Christ will live. Everyone who is in Adam will die. He's not saying everyone will be saved. Another one that they like to use. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I'm almost not going to have to answer this one for you. When it says the world to himself, what does that mean? Is he talking about everybody on the planet? Or is he talking ethnically? He's talking ethnically, not statistically. Last one, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The purpose of this verse is to say if anything isn't reconciled to Christ or reconciled to God, it is, they are reconciled through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. Now, let's move out of these verses and briefly touch, touch on theology. Where does universalism go theologically wrong? Think about this. If universalism was true, we could save ourselves. If it just takes spending a few hundred or a few thousand years in hell to eventually pay for your sins so you can go to heaven, why did Jesus come? It makes absolutely no sense if you can eventually pay for your own sin. Also, if universalism was true, we'd have to, Jesus would have to change all kinds of things he said in the Bible. I'll just give you one example for the fun of it. Remember when Jesus was dying, he hung between two thieves. One thief hated him and despised him. The other thief trusted in him and repented. And Jesus turned to the thief who trusted in him and repented and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. But if universalism was true, right after that he should have turned to the other thief and said, By the way, you'll be with me too, but it might take a few hundred years of hell, but you'll get there. He didn't say that. Because it makes absolutely no sense sense. Well, the liberal church is the main one who likes to platform universalism, the idea that everyone in hell will eventually go to heaven, even Satan himself. It's oftentimes evangelicals that try to take the next escape room for hell, and then annihilationism. Now let me tell you what annihilationists claim. Annihilationists claim people will escape hell by ceasing to exist instead of suffering eternally. Sort of like you're there a few hundred years, a few thousand years, eventually you just burn out and go away. 
Now, as we had two different types of universalism, there are two different types of annihilationism, I have to explain to you. First, there is secular annihilationism, and this is what secular annihilation teaches. We didn't exist before we were born, and guess what? We die and we don't exist after we die. Like we didn't exist before, we won't exist after. And that's typically what's taught in your science class in high school. You came from nothing, you go to nothing, you just go away. But the one that, is, that we're going to deal with this morning is called theological annihilationism. That is either shortly after being sent to hell or sometime in the future, those in hell will be burned up and cease to exist. And what they claim is that why hell itself may be eternal, those who are sent to hell will not suffer eternally. They just sort of, you know, burn up like the campfire. The wood is gone. Now, those who are educated beyond their intelligence have a fancier name for this. They call it conditional immortality. That's the next fill in the blank for you. Conditional immortality, this is what they say, the only one who is immortal is God himself. And as Christians, you know, the Bible says that we are united with Christ, so we are given the gift of immortality. And those who go to the lake of fire are not united with Christ, so they do not get the gift of immortality. So one day in the future, they will burn up and cease to exist. Just as I gave you the history of universalism, let me give you the history of annihilationism and where it came from and how it started. Annihilationism was first proposed in the fourth century by a, ga a guy named Arnobius. And if you're a lady who's pregnant and you're looking for children's names, do not use Arnobius. Not a good guy. Bad name association. Arnobius actually was a teacher of rhetoric in Numidia, Africa. He spent most of his life not as a Christian, but as a secular person, teaching public speaking, came to Christ at the end of his life, and actually his bishop went on record in that time as even doubting his conversion, which is not a good thing when you can find that several thousand years later. What he did is he would take and he'd mix the Bible, which sort of his secular philosophy that he had grown up with. And in most of his writings, they were completely devoid of scripture verses to support his thoughts, which to me is a major red flag when you don't have any Bible in what you're saying. And he came up with the idea that eventually people would be burned out in hell and cease to exist in hell. Now, we told you earlier that there was a major worldwide church council in the year 553 called the Council of Constantinople, where universalism as a belief of what happens in the lake of fire was condemned as heresy. At that time, Arnobius's belief of annihilationism was also condemned as a church heresy. And it successfully sequestered it as a belief for about a thousand years of history. Because when you have a universal church council that condemns something as heresy, you pretty much stay away from it. But it began to crop up again. And there was another church council in the year 1513 called the Lateran Church Council, which once again re-examined annihilationism as a viable alternative and condemned it as heresy. So now it's been condemned as heresy by two church councils in 1500 years of church history. 
but it popped up again in the 16th century. I got to love these guys' names. They're Italian. It was first taught by the Sozzini brothers. Leo, Lilio and Fasto, Lozini, began teaching annihilationism of people in hell. Now, where did they go? They are the historical roots of the Unitarian Church. Remember what happened in 1961 where the Universalist Church and the Unitarian Church joined as one to create the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship? The Universalists were the ones proposing universalism where everybody went to heaven, even Satan himself. The Unitarians were the ones proposing annihilationism, which nobody suffers in hell eternally. Eventually they burn up. Not a great pedigree to come from. Then you had the Jehovah's Witnesses began teaching annihilationism, that those would go to hell and eventually burn out. Later the Seventh-day Adventists began teaching annihilationism, that those who went to hell would eventually burn out. Now, this wouldn't be so concerning, but in recent church history, there are even some evangelicals who have begun to teach annihilationism. Probably one of the more prominent ones is a guy named John Wenham. He wrote a book called The Goodness of God. He wrote a book called Facing Hell, and this is what he says in this book. And he would normally be considered an evangelical, and he's written in books that people in our camp would read. This is what he says. I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should indeed be happy if before I die I could help in sweeping it away. Pretty strong words. Another evangelical that some of you may know that began dabbling into annihilationism is a guy named John Stott. Now, I love John Stott. Great, brilliant guy. He's written so many good things. But uh, there is, towards the end of his life, he began doing a book with a guy named Edwards. And Edwards was a liberal. Stott was a conservative. And Edwards teased him out to talk about his beliefs about hell in that book. And this is what he said. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. Now, 99% of the evangelical world, just so you know, considers that John Stott sort of stepped off the ledge on that one. Did a lot of good things, but went too far on that thing. While universalists like to make their points by taking scripture verses and reading them out of context and not necessarily reading them fairly and honestly in light of other scripture verses, Annihilationists know that they can't get away with that because most of the evangelical Christians are a little too smart to fall for those kind of shenanigans. So what they do is they make their arguments based on logic. What they say, what seems right or what feels right. So we're going to examine their arguments from a logical perspective. And I'll give you some quotes from annihilationist authors. First of all, are human beings essentially mortal? That's the conditional immortality. That's the one that is the backbone to most of what they teach. Annihilationists teach, once again, that um, the only people who will achieve immortality are the Christians who are united with Christ. And this is the key verse they use to support this. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. See, God alone has immortality. And here is where they make a misstep. They confuse the difference between what is called essential immortality and endowed immortality. Write that down. God alone has what is called essential immortality. He never had a beginning, and he will never have an ending. Endowed immortality are beings that God creates, so they have a beginning, but he chooses to sustain them so they do not have an ending. That's called endowed immortality. Who has endowed immortality? The Bible tells us that Satan has endowed immortality. We know he was an angel. He is a fallen angel. He was a created being who rebelled against God, but God, we, the Bible tells us God will choose to sustain him forever even in the lake of fire, he will suffer there eternally. Look what it says, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The only reason he can be tormented eternally is because he's been endowed by immortality from God to be tormented eternally. Incidentally, it's not just Satan who has endowed immortality. I don't know if you realize it, but it's you and me. We have a, a date when we were created. The tombstone may have a died date, but there is no such thing as a cease to exist date on any one of us. Look what the scriptures say. Matthew chapter 25. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The only way we can have eternal life is because God has endowed immortality upon us. Not because we have it in nature, but it's a gift from God. In the same way, the only way eternal punishment can last is because Immortality has been endowed by God. Now, let's look at the annihilationist claims. As I said, they don't like to use Bible verses. They like to use logic. So let's use some logic to work our way through this. Here's what they say. Eternal punishment for a few earthly sins doesn't seem to make sense. And I'm going to quote Clark Pinnock, who is a, a very, how would I call it? He is a very... Um, clear writer to explain their position. He says it just doesn't make sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It makes no sense to suppose that alongside the new creation tucked away in some corner of it there exists a lake of fire with souls burning ceaselessly in it. Well, I want you to notice how Pinnock supports this. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into my mind. So the standard of truth for him is not what the Bible says. 
it's what seems to make sense to him. Folks, there's a lot of things that the Bible says that don't seem to make sense to us. True? We accept it as true because we're not God. I'll tell you what doesn't make sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is not eternity in the lake of fire. What doesn't make sense to me, but what the Bible says is true, is that we are saved from eternity in the lake of fire. It doesn't make sense to me that Jesus loves us, that he died for us, that we will be the most blessed beings for all of eternity. Nothing will be more blessed than we are. That doesn't make sense. Eternity in the lake of fire makes a lot more sense. Because I know my heart, and it's pretty wicked. Let's look at the next argument they often give. An eternal hell would mean God had not achieved complete victory over evil. Stott says this in his book, the eternal existence of the impenitent in hell would be hard to reconcile with the promises of God's final victory over evil. The idea that hell exists means that, well, he says, that would mean God hasn't finally conquered evil. <laughs> Actually, I disagree with that. I think the fact that the lake of fire is populated does mean that God has finally conquered evil. That's the whole point. There is no way out. The most vicious, the most wicked opponents of God, Satan himself, the beast, the false prophet, are in the lake of fire with no escape. God has conquered them. You see, to conquer an enemy, you don't always have to annihilate and destroy an enemy so they cease to exist. You can take them captive and put them into forced labor. You ever heard of a POW camp? You can conquer an enemy without killing them. You can keep them in subjection to you. That is what hell is. It is Satan and all evil in complete and total subjection to God and his power never to influence his creation again. Another example. There should be a time when people have suffered enough to pay for their sin. Clark Pinnock says this in his book called The Conditional View. The idea that a conscious creature should have to undergo physical and mental torture through unending time is just a profoundly dis disturbing. He said there should be a time somewhere in there where enough is enough, where people have finally just paid for their sins, and at that point, they should be able to cease to exist. Think about that. If there's a time, someplace in history that people have paid for their sins, they shouldn't cease to exist. They should go to heaven. And if there was any way that people could pay for their sins over a period of time, Jesus didn't need to come. Jesus came because there is no way to pay for sins over time because it is that great. It is only a sacrifice of infinite worth named Jesus who is sufficient enough to pay for our sins. Let me give you one final one. The punishment of eternal hell doesn't fit the crime of earthly sin. Here's another quote from Pinnock out of a different book. But unending torment would be the kind of utterly pointless and wasted suffering which could never lead to anything good beyond it. 
Furthermore, it would amount to inflicting infinite suffering upon those who have committed finite sins. It would go far beyond an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There would be a serious disproportion between the sins committed in time and the suffering experienced forever. His idea is 20 or 30 or 60 years of sins punished by infinite suffering. It's not fair. It's not equal. It doesn't make sense. Here's a couple answers for you. Number one, the amount of time spent committing sin does not necessarily determine the amount of time spent being punished for sin. Did you guys see in the news the arrest of some MS-13 gang members this past week in California? They're arrested for brutal medieval-style killings. One was a homeless man who happened to fall asleep in a park that they claimed as their gang territory. So they came up to him and they literally cut his heart out of his body and watched him die. Took about what? Five, ten minutes to do it? I hope they suffer for a lot more than five to ten minutes. You see how the amount of time spent committing a crime does not necessarily determine the, the amount of time being punished for a crime? Twenty or thirty years of sins? The Bible says just response is eternity. Number two, God alone can determine the nature of our sin and the proper punishment for our sins. Folks, we way underestimate the significance of our sins. Think of it this way. It was one act of sin by Adam and Eve, eating the fruit that brought physical death to all people which brought spiritual death to all people, which brought eternal death to all people. One act of sin. And we've committed how many? Millions? So you see, when you say that sins of a few earthly years could never merit eternal punishment, it's because we don't understand how bad sin actually is. And then lastly, this is one of my favorite arguments, in hell, we have no reason to believe that sin will ever cease. The idea that after you can pay for your sins after 20 or 30 years assumes that maybe after a thousand years of, in hell, you've never committed sin in that place. But folks, didn't you realize repentance of sin and conviction of sin is a gift from God? And when someone is in hell for eternity, we have no reason to think they will cease sinning. In fact, when people are in agony, what do they tend to do? Actually sin even more. If I was to take a brick, Mike, and drop a big brick on your foot, do you think what would come out of your mouth would reveal your holiness or your sinfulness? Probably your sinfulness, right? So you put somebody in hell for eternity. What's going to happen? More holiness or more sinfulness? More sinfulness. Now, lastly... How do we respond to this? We began by looking at the escape room. Escape rooms are popular. If you find a code or crack a puzzle, you can escape from that locked room. You now we've looked at hell. The Bible tells us is a locked room, an inescapable room. Universalists has claimed you can escape, but the revival verses don't hold up. Annihilationists have claimed that you can escape, but even their logic doesn't hold up. Why would God ever want eternal punishment in hell? What possible good 
could come from it? Well, there's a variety of reasons, and I want to give you one as we close. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, it says that, you know, God has created different objects, different vessels, some for wrath and some for mercy. Those objects created for wrath will reveal God's wrath and they will reveal God's great power. And those created for mercy will reveal his incredible amounts of kindness and love. Let me look what it says here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, those determined to go to hell? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Folks, hell, what it serves as, is a beacon in all of eternity to show God's incredible wrath against sin, incredible power over sin. And for us, who fully deserve hell, but have been given incredible mercy, incredible forgiveness, be made the most blessed beings in the universe through Jesus, you know what will happen? We will see hell and to know what we fully deserve and it will cause us to weep with joy, weep with gladness to Jesus because of what he has done for us and how he has forgiven us where hell ceased to cease to exist, a little bit of our gratitude to Jesus for what he saved us from would be unknown. Hell exists, one reason, eternally, is so we are filled with joy and gratitude to Jesus so we know forever that we have not gotten what we deserve, but we have been given forgiveness, mercy, and restoration and love forever. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, the reason we love to sing to you, the reason we love to pray to you, the reason we love to focus on you is because you have saved us from the wrath of your Father that we fully deserved. You have saved us not just in this life, but you saved us for all eternity and made us so blessed completely as a gift from you. I ask that this week, as we go into the week, that we would be filled with joy. We would literally weep with gratitude for you having saved us from the just eternal hell that we fully deserve. May we never lose sight of what we should have been versus what we have now been given through you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.